was uh, picked up my granddaughter yesterday, and oftentimes I will, I've been just using times when I have to drive across town, which in Fort Wayne is 20 minutes to get anywhere, right? So it's a great time to pray. So I'm, you know, I'm going through my prayer time, and I picked her up, got her in the back, back seat. She hops in, and immediately she starts talking. I said, honey, Opa's still got to finish up a few of his prayers. Is that okay? I said, okay, yeah, okay, Opa. Can I say them after you? So, <laughs> so we were praying. So I said, Lord, have mercy. She said, Lord, have mercy. Why are we saying that? <laughs> so, uh, so this morning she came in. Uh, she spent the night with us. This morning she came in. I said, honey, I, Opa's going to say part of his prayers. Well, can I say it with you again? I said, sure. Come in and sit on my lap, and we'll, we'll pray that prayer. And so uh, if, if I can teach her that simple prayer, Lord, Son of David, have mercy. What a prayer. You know, that's the church has called that the Jesus prayer, and I think there's a reason for it. It is sometimes the best, most powerful that we can cry. Amen? And that we can pray. Um, I want to I share with us this morning uh, out of Matthew 23, and, and admittedly, I, this is a pretty raw message I'm going to share. It comes out of a lot of my own prayer in that kind of way. Okay, but Matthew 23. Again, I'm, I'm reading from, uh, what, what is this, the Passion. Um, then the, Jesus addressed both the crowds and his disciples and said, The religious scholars and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat as the authorized interpreters of the law. So they listen, so listen and follow what they teach, but don't do what they do. They tell you one thing and do another. They tie on your backs an oppressive burden of religious obligations and insist that you carry them, but will never lift a finger to help ease your load. Everything they do is for show and to be noticed by others. They want to be seen as holy. So they wear oversized prayer boxes on their arms and foreheads with scriptures inside and wear extra long tassels on their outer garments. They crave the seats of highest honor at banquets and in their meeting places. And how they love to be admired by men with titles of respect, aspiring to be recognized in public and have others call them reverend. Now, again, this is obviously westernized translation, but it's pretty good. But you are to be different from that. You're not to be called master, for you have one master. You have all brothers and sisters, and you, you're not to be addressed as father, for you have one father who is in heaven. Nor are you to be addressed as teacher, for you have one teacher, the anointed one. The greatest among you will be the one who always serves others. Remember this. If you have a lofty opinion of yourself and seek to be honored, you will be humbled. But if you are, have a modest opinion of yourself and choose to humble yourself, you will be honored. Lord, grant that your word would speak to us today. Amen. Um, I've titled the message this morning, Sand Castles. It came out of my own prayer time. The title came out of my prayer time. And, uh, and then specifically out of one memory uh, that I had in this last year, and it makes me smile. Um, I had the joy of being able to travel with my youngest son, uh, you know, freshly minted college graduate a little over a year and a half ago, had by that point already accepted a professional job by one of the top accounting firms in the country and, 
We went on a, a trip. He asked if I would go with him, and, and uh, so we were in Hawaii, and we were on the last day uh, on the big island, and we had done everything we wanted to do, and we were waiting for the sunset, and so we found a public beach, which was near, interestingly, near the old airport in Kona. It's a beautiful area there. And so we're there, and we're taking turns. We've kind of packed our bags. So to, uh, I packed mine. He's packed his because got a fresh flight in the morning. And I, uh, he had his mask and snorkel gear with him, so he went into the water, which is, you know, he's a di- one of our diving sons. And, of course, without any effort, finds all kinds of things. I, it wasn't that easy for me to find, but I, he said, you want to go, you know, take a stab at snorkeling? So I went ahead and did. Um, interesting, while we were there on that beach that afternoon, there's a couple sitting, you know, a few paces away from us. He proposes to this gal while we're, I mean, we're just going about our life, right? You know, and so I, I remember coming up out of the water, finding, now do you have that picture? Did, I, did you get that? Here's my six foot four strapping son, right? He does jujitsu. You guys have seen him. Right? He's a big guy. Um, and I come up out of the water and I'm like, I've got to get a photo of this. He's making a sandcastle. And I was like, yes. Now, I was blessed because, uh, for one thing, uh, I you know he I graduated with honors at IU or at Kelly School of Business at IU, which is not an easy thing to even get into school, but so I graduate with honors. He's a great student, got a great work ethic, and he's just not taking himself incredibly seriously. He's actually just enjoying the moment, and so I whip out my camera. I'm taking the photo. I'm trying. To, I think I sent Denise a Marco Polo or something. I don't know. I, I remember how. I, I, I have a video of this moment. So he's building this sandcastle, and I'm taking a picture. And then he turns to me and says, come on, Dad. Oh, I can still do that, right? So we we're, we're, uh, begin to work together. And then, of course, as it would, as it would happen to happen, as it would happen in that place, a big old honking wave comes in and nearly washes out this first castle that he's made. Really, it was a, an impressive little castle. I, by this point, we built little things. We've got all kinds of different things. And he's telling a story while he's building it. That, that was what was fun. Uh, he learned a little bit of that from his mother. So he's telling this story. And, okay, Sandcastle becomes a victim of the tide. Oh, no, it's a tsunami, we say. So we moved the village further up land. And, you know, there's this whole storyline that we're giving. And, of course, what happens a little bit later? The tide comes in, and it's, you know, anyway, there was, I, I'm pretty sure within a few minutes there wasn't a whole lot left. And isn't that what happens to most sandcastles, Right? I've been thinking about that idea. And the question that's been ringing in my head is this. When will we take Jesus seriously enough to stop building our own sandcastles? I I could expound on this a lot. And maybe, maybe I will in, in the future. But I, 
think about how this gets framed out. The things that so often we invest our time, energy, and effort into. That Jesus calls, you know, wood, hay, stubble, thieves can break in and steal, moth and rust destroy. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know, anyone who hears these words of mine, you see, it's, it's not a lot of fun when we put a lot of effort into something and suddenly we find out it's not much there. Anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man or woman building sandcastles. Last Sunday afternoon, this is where this message gets kind of personal. We came home uh, after church. I felt like it was a good time of worship together, really enjoyed being together. Um, we had a list of chores that we had to accomplish that afternoon. So somewhere late in the afternoon, I, I went over to Nice and I said, honey, I think I'm going to take my 20-minute nap now. And I did, of course, what every person should logically do before they take a nap, look at your phone. And uh, I'm kidding. You're not supposed to do that. But uh, I saw a, a feed that popped up in Facebook that caught my eye because it was directly related to the International House of Prayer Kansas City. And, you know, we've had a relationship there years ago. That's I went there almost 20 years ago, spent three months there training, and we even named our, 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 our prayer ministry after that for about the first 18-plus years, um, the International House of Prayer, Greater Fort Wayne. Now we've renamed our ministry Tending Ancient Paths. It had nothing to do with this, by the way. Um, but, but the article itself was an absolute shock because I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing, and then I, I checked an investigative reporter that I trust, um, and sure enough, she had posted it um, and then posted the link to a public statement by three men that I know personally, two of them that we've had in our home. They had all been a part of that ministry about allegations of sexual abuse by the founder of that ministry. And I was gutted. And I, I, I'm not saying this to disparage any person. But what I'm trying to say is I, it is deeply disorienting when we find ourselves confronted by the news of someone who clearly said one thing and it would appear did another. Jesus says this, the, guys, pay attention here. There's a lot of sand castling going on around you. Now, my, my point is, Unfortunately, this has become the norm, not just of church leaders, national leaders, gaining platforms and prominence only to discover they said one thing and did another. And what's hard about it is because it, it feels like it's oftentimes a betrayal because we've entrusted our trust to someone and then it's misused, all the while building a, quote, reputation in ministry that is nothing more than a sandcastle. And here's where I'm landing at currently is 
I think we need to take a serious pause because my conclusion is this. Oftentimes we look at these failures and we say, ah, let's try to avoid that. I'm wondering if maybe what we need to avoid is let's not build the sandcastle. How about let's build what we're supposed to be building, which is a flourishing life in God, not how cool what I've worked on for years looks like to other people. Am I making sense what I'm trying to say? You see, for me, it's less about a failure of of some individual or the organization. I think it's a failure of foundation, fundamentally. When we build a li- our life and our faith around systems and structures, anything less than a flourishing, actual flourishing life, 24-7, everyday kind of life, and of faith, it winds up with this facade. And all of those facades just are stuff built on sand, a facade of religion that's lived to impress or uh, others or benefit from it. And, and Jesus said, don't do that. They're saying one thing and doing it. No. So before I, I, I want to make sure to acknowledge this, I, I believe we've all actually built sandcastles in our life. Um, even in how we relate to God. that we believe we can curry some sense of favor because of what we've done or how we've lived. You know, that getting, gaining, earning, deserving in our human frame, especially when I compare my life to that guy who utterly ignores everything I've given my life toward. The gospel proclaims God came not because of what I did. Am I right? Before we ever did, so this is what I, oh, oh, I need to surrender to that good news each and every day? Yes, because I can, I can easily build facades. It's just part of our human nature. And, and what we're called is to inhabit a life built on a foundation, and, and that rock, that foundation is the foundation of the love of God revealed in Christ. That is the gospel. His grace, his mercy, his faithfulness, his decision that he would relate to you and to me on the basis of what he did and what he is doing, that's the unmovable foundation. And that his goal is that I could live today a life that experiences his flourishing. I'm I'm trying each day to say, Lord, I want to get up with that goal in mind. See, when Jesus is speaking to the sandcastle builders, don't don't do that. He's talking to me. Every time that I put my confidence in something other than surrendering again to the grace of God, the mercy of God today afresh. Um, I, I several examples I could give of this. I don't want to. It's in the notes. I don't think I've got time to go through all of them. But you know what? What does a sandcastle, spiritual sandcastle, look like? 
Jesus said it's, you know, when you know the right thing and you reserve the right not to do it, you might have a facade. You might have a sand castle. Um, if you're motivated by what you look like uh, in front of other people, who we are when nobody's looking, that's what matters. If we trust in our formula about God, I've done this for so long and why isn't God doing that? Over for the formation of Christ in me, what does the formation of Christ in me look like? Well, Jesus, uh, you, you guys have heard me say this. I'm just going to hit the repeat button. Here we go. Repeat, because I find Jesus repeats a lot of this stuff over and over. But uh, you're living in a world where the, it says you're really blessed if you do well, but I'm saying blessed are the poor in spirit. So what's getting formed inside of me? How, what, what is my expectation of God and the narrative that I'm telling about God and am I doing this because the narrative I'm saying to myself is, then I deserve. Wait, whoa, 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 wait, wait, whoa, no. Wrong narrative. You know, this is kind of a crude way of saying it, but, you know, if you do this, it will go better for you, that kind of thing. Um, actually, Jesus said, all those who want to live a godly life will suffer. So part, part of our repentance is recognizing how those sandcastles can get formed in our head, in our thinking. We need a clarity about what, what uh, actual repentance looks like. If our position um, is, has been that somehow, you know, if, if, you, if you say stop doing bad stuff and hanging out with other people that do, that's repentance. Well, that's, that's a part of it, but the bigger part is surrendering to the truth that God's chosen to love you because of who you are. He said you're worth something. There's a whole lot larger message of repentance in that. When I'm surrendering to the fact that, I, Lord, I'm really sorry I, I messed up here, but you actually think I'm worth what you gave? Yes, I do. So... See, if our idea about repentance is always ends in the idea that I have to say sorry, and that's it, I feel sorry enough, we will always get repentance wrong. Because repentance isn't about, quote, just being sorry. It's actually about dealing with what I believe in. Is Are you, are you following what I'm sharing here? So... Those are the sandcastles. Like, Lord, maybe I've got the, maybe I've got a formula here that isn't yours, and I, I need to surrender to what you actually said. And Paul says this: you know, we taught a repentance unto God. So repentance isn't just like I'm turning away from the bad stuff. It's like, oh, oh, this is what you are like. This is who you have said that I am. So there's a place for godly sorrow. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But it is also accompanied with like a fascination with the truth of who he is. When we communicate anything less than that, and unfortunately we have, we, I dare say, 
even shut the door of heaven in the faces of men and women when we preach repentance based purely on focusing on our failures. Are you, are you following me? All right? So that might be another sandcastle to turn away from. Traditions. There's one. Um, I was looking at this this week. I'm just going to, I need to move forward, but I'm, you know, Jesus said they trust in tradition, and we're like, yeah, we don't do that stuff. Not us. I was part of the Reformation. That's what I grew up in. My parents were part of the Reformed Church. And my dad used to say it was um, Calvin who finished the Reformation. Luther started, but Calvin got it done. And we follow that dude. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, you know, and, and, and my dad taught me a deep love for the scriptures. I have memorized huge amounts of the scriptures. And I can pretty much detect when somebody's quoting it correctly or incorrectly. And there was a time in my life when I said, you know what, the most important thing is that I can know exactly where I can find what's true in the scripture. And I've got other individuals in my life who even hold up this ideal and they say, you know, you got to have a book, chapter, and verse for everything you do in your life. I get what they're getting at. But when I encounter those, those kind of folks, and, and, you know, they're like, you want to know what I believe? Look in that book. And, well, let me just poke one little hole in that for a second. As far as our tradition... Did you know that the book that most of us hold don't even have several of the books that Jesus read when he held the book? Which was the Old Testament, right? Are, are you guys with me? Right? Jesus had the Old Testament. He studied the scriptures. Yes, Ben, he did. Right. So, but did you know that Luther, when he printed his version of the Bible in 1534, he took 14 of those books out of the Old Testament. They're called intertestamental, intertestamental books. Intertestamental. There we go. Intertestamental books. And he said, you know, they're good, but they're not necessary. And he even gave them a separate label. Don't really have to have them. We'll leave them in there. But he put them in a different title. Regrouped it. In 1821... Can you guys say 1821 with me for a minute? 1821. The British and Foreign Bible Society said, you know what? It's less expensive if we just don't print those. I have really well-meaning friends who actually get really, really upset when I talk about apocryphal books because they say they're not the Scriptures, and yet they're the ones that Jesus read. I, I, I'm just trying to say to us, we need to, like, hold loosely when we say we're not tradition. Well, hang on. What is the Scripture all about anyway? You've heard me say that. I said it last week. The highest point of Scripture is, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, yeah, you, you'll get that in your Bible that you have. Let's hold on to that. But let's not miss the richness of what we can gain that can actually become a little bit better foundation for me. Anyway, there's an interesting thought, isn't it? Uh, so this is where the church fathers can help us value and have a foundation in our life. Um, if we lack basic love for people, 
Uh, we might be building a sandcastle. I was reading early morning prayer this past week uh, from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King said this. He said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I was thinking about the injustices that are occurring in the world right now in the wars that are being waged, in babies that are being lost. And he went on to say this. He said, we're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. What affects one directly affects all indirectly. Beloved, that's the right heart and attitude rather than for us to look at buildings that have been leveled and say, well, terrorists deserve what they're getting. I don't think so. You see, I... I don't, I don't want to build a sand castle that allows my heart not to love my neighbor. Are, you understand what I'm getting at on that? Okay. I need to move forward. Okay. Um, so the path that actually brings life and restoration to humanity, Jesus said, here it is. The greatest is going to be a servant, the one who always serves. So uh, Jesus comes and he reveals that by the means of embracing the ugliness of a cross, And I wonder, at times, this is, this is what rolls in my head when I read the news reports, when I get things that just hang with, like that. when I heard that news last week, it just hung on me for a couple, two, three days. Lord, I want to build my life on the rock. That a flourishing, not a flourishing ministry, but a flourishing life of loving God, loving my neighbor, is that life built on the rock, and it's enough and I prophesied over my own self today, and I prophesied over us. Not how impressive we think our, quote, ministries look like, but our lives living in and from the love of God. So that repentance is a repentance I need to go through. Oh, yeah, Lord, I don't want to build sandcastles. How does that work? Love me, love your neighbor. And by the way, pay attention to that narrative that crops up in your head and in and, and, and your heart and bad news that seems to be going on inside of you and recognize that I've got good news that I'm proclaiming. What I build my life upon, let's get serious about this foundation. Lord, I want to repent. I was sharing with a friend this last week, and he and I usually get coffee, and his, his, uh, his daughter was serving us. And uh, I made some statement to her. I said, I was trying to work on my repentance, but I said, every day is a good day to repent. And she said, you know, that's, you're right. Every day is a good day to repent. So I said, we're, we're just trying to surrender to repent. And part of that repentance, beloved, is something I believe that we want to proclaim over our own bodies and our minds. And this is where I believe the disciplines come into play for us, the disciplines of prayer, the disciplines of proclaiming the scriptures, coming back and surrendering again to those truths. All right, let me, let me also submit to you that, that the next part of that repentance is, see, I got, my, I got lost in my own notes, identifying this bad news, proclaiming the good news, uh, the practice of prayer that, for me, part of the practice of prayer is praying, oh, yeah, Jesus, you said this, that that I, I ought to have a life of prayer that looks hidden in you. You said I ought to pray this way. You said blessed are the meek. You said blessed are those who mourn and lament, and that's okay for me to feel this. Okay? 
The next thing I want to share, I, I read this earlier this morning, and I threw this into my notes because I was like, ah, oh, this is right on target to this idea about building a foundation. And one of the blog writers I like to follow, her name is Diana Butler Bass, and um, she had a friend who recently uh, encouraged her to read her own book. <laughs> she was sharing that she was getting so discouraged by what's happening in the world, and her friend said, have you read your book, Grateful? And so she went back to read it. And so she quotes her own book. And I, I would like to close this morning just reading this latter part of this book. A century ago, Albert Schweitzer, theologian and Nobel Peace Prize winner, remarked, the greatest thing to give thanks for, uh, the greatest thing to do is to give thanks for everything. He who has learned this knows what it means to live. He has penetrated the whole mystery of life, giving thanks for everything. He was right. To learn gratitude is to know the mystery of life. But he's wrong in a very important way. Every day there are reasons not to feel grateful and not to practice gratitude. Terrible, distressing, painful, awful things happen all the time. The emotions of thanks elude us, and it's, it's easy to choose ingratitude. Yet when I watch the news and fear grips my heart about whatever comes next, when a friend is diagnosed with cancer or a loved one dies, and uh, that Bible verse that Albert Schweitzer alludes to, the one I memorized as a teenager, calls it in a better way than Albert Schweitzer, in everything, give thanks. It doesn't say, for everything, give thanks. Gratitude never calls to give thanks for anything that is evil or unjust, never for violence, lying, oppression, suffering. Do not be grateful for those things. The Greek word is en, which means in, or to be within. It locates us in it, in the past, in the future, in happiness, in despair, in all things, in all times, in all circumstances, situations. Gratefulness grounds our lives in the world and with others always locating the gifts of grace that accompany our way. Gra gratitude is an emotion. Gratitude is an ethical way of life. It is a disposition, an awareness, a set of habits. But ultimately, gratitude is a place. Perhaps the place where we find our truest and best selves. To know the mystery of life is to be grateful in all things, in all things, with all things, through all things. I've discovered I am no longer an ingrate, but I am living in gratitude. Sometimes the world turns on a preposition. To be grateful in these days is an act of resistance. Resilience, renewal. My journey started because I did not know how to write thank you notes, and it led me to understand that a politic of gratitude is a way of healing and compassion, perhaps even salvation. I invite you to the journey from ingratitude to gratefulness and to find yourself part of a like-spirited community. You're not alone. There are many on the road. Give thanks 
live in gratitude. The gospel, beloved, is about living in gratitude for what God has done. His grace, his mercy, his faithfulness, his decision to relate to us on the basis of himself. It's an assault on our facades. But it's an invitation to ground my life on a different foundation, a life that can flourish. And that is good news. Amen? Amen. I want to invite us this morning as we close, let's pray this prayer together. And uh, I'm going to invite you, let's pray this prayer out loud. If you are on the call, we want to invite you to have something available to be able to share in communion together. And um, so if you grab a hold of that. But let's, let's pray this prayer together. God of justice and peace. By the way, that word justice in the Old Testament specifically, and it also relates into the New Testament. When you hear the word righteousness, oftentimes my brain goes to purity, but the word righteousness and justice are synonymous in the Old Testament. Let's go back. God of justice and peace. From the heavens you rain down mercy and kindness that all on earth may stand in awe and wonder before your marvelous deeds. Raise our heads in expectation that we may yearn for the coming day of the Lord and stand without blame before your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen.